when I think about home or being home, or just the concept of the word home, uh, I think about warmth, uh, somewhere that just feels really, really comfortable. I just consider home to be whatever the safe place is. You know, where you're feeling um, loved for who you are. Home is an environment that you create um, in order to lead. That's what home is to me. It's an environment that makes people feel open, wanted, loved, um, willing and open to speak. It's very difficult to, to lead in an environment that's not welcoming. So I work in a culture that's very, very fast-paced. It's often thought of as aggressive, and it's very difficult for people to lift their head up and stop and, and have genuine moment of connection with people. I make a, a real concerted effort to break that pattern and just take a breath, say hi to somebody, buy them a cup of coffee, you know, have a, have a conversation, even if it's for two minutes, five minutes. It makes a completely different atmosphere than if you don't do that. Very simple activity that we do in my workplace to make people feel at home is we celebrate birthdays. It gives the entire group an opportunity to take a break in the afternoon of a person's birthday, but it also makes that person feel special and celebrated on that day. Um, I kind of believe in like the round tables, not rectangular tables. It's like everyone has this equal space or equal value in the, in the position, in the discussion, and whatever's going on. A lot of people uh, that I work with, uh, staff, they can they usually come and talk to me about things that are going on. You want everyone to feel like, like you're someone they can go to about anything, and then that makes me feel like I've created a home-like atmosphere for them in my office. My goal for them is be able to come into work and leave the workplace happy every day that they can get home each evening and not have to say that, oh, I had a bad day today. Mary Kay Cosmetics, we concentrate on people and love, and most companies will concentrate on profit and loss. And I think that if you want to be a hospitable leader, you really need to be focusing on that people and love part. I think it's really, for me, about just being as authentic as possible. I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve, especially working with teenagers getting personal with them, sharing parts of who I am, parts of my life, the things that I am passionate about. Um, it really opens up the doors to allow them to trust me and also connect to me, and it creates an instant feeling of home. I think you sometimes find yourself in an environment that um, typically it's a very adversarial situation because you're dealing with prosecutors and you're on different, different sides of, of the fence. So to be able to have um, an intellectual dialogue and to be to be able to resolve problems that occur I think is important and so if you have a warm hospitable atmosphere it, it's really conducive to that. I think before my profession is involved I, I think my myself as a person um, is where I begin and that's where hospitality really comes into play so I need to be warm I need to have a warm heart I need to be considerate and kind and thoughtful and I need to really set the tone for the people I interview before I can get the job done. And by being hospitable and by being welcoming and by having a warm heart and building a strong relationship with these individuals, we often yield better results. The more authentic and um, loving that I am in my approach, just being who I am, who I would be to my child, who I'd be my husband being that way with the people that I serve, 
um, is how I'm able to create a sense of home. I think it's important to be hospitable because it really opens up all kinds of doors for you to be successful in your particular endeavor. It makes people feel welcome, it makes people feel warm, and consequently they open up to you. And so you're able to ha have a dialogue with one another and feel comfortable in a warm and relaxing atmosphere. So Chip and Dan Heath in their beautiful book called The Power of Moments tell the story of Doug Dietz. Doug Dietz is an industrial designer from General Electric. He was tasked with the responsibility of designing a better MRI machine. He spent two years on the project and he was just thrilled on a day in the fall of 2007 when the first machine was actually going to be used by a real patient. He was kind of hiding in the background watching. He was so excited about the machine he said he did a happy dance. The first customer was a little girl and he watched as this little girl and her parents walked the hall of the hospital to the MRI suite and the little girl was crying and her parents looked terrorized. And then when she walked in the room, it only got worse, and her dad and mom were encouraging her to be brave, that she was gonna be okay. And uh, he knew, in fact, that this was about to get worse for her, because she was about to be inserted into the claustrophobic bore of that MRI machine and listen to all those terrible clankings and bangings in that machine and that it would go for 30 minutes to an hour. And uh, Doug Dietz found himself heartbroken at what should have been this most exciting of moments. And all of a sudden he realized that he had focused on the wrong thing. He had focused on the machine, but he hadn't focused on the person who would use it. And so he convened a group of experts in um, children, and uh, particularly the ability of children to use their imagination to create almost any space into something wonderful. And over the course of time, they redesigned an entire experience for children around MRIs. They, instead of having a, a, an MRI suite, they created spaces like a jungle adventure or a spaceship or a submarine or a pirate island or a cable car adventure where the entire room and even the hallway leading to it was transformed into something magical. Uh, the table for the MRI in one case was, was made to look like a canoe. It was lowered where a child could climb in it and then they were told they had to lie still or else they tip the canoe over in this marvelous river adventure. And all of a sudden, Dietz was seeing little kids after going through an MRI, pulling on their parents' clothing and saying, I want to come back tomorrow. I want to come back tomorrow. Really, this is one of many examples I could use of a hospitable leader. Someone who creates environments that welcome people in to do good and beautiful things, but sometimes important, but difficult things. It's important for us to remember that people are not machines. 
And we do not relate to the environment around us, the environments that we live and work in, as machinery. People, people feel and think and want and need and will. People have hearts, physical hearts and spiritual hearts. And our spiritual heart is the center of our feeling, thinking, wanting, needing, and willing. And if we're going to be good leaders, we're going to pay attention to people's hearts. The wisest man who ever lived said, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The fact is, a person who knows how to touch someone's heart, someone who pays attention to the entire human experience will be successful in any context. Now, I wanna talk about hospitable leadership today. And hospitable leaders pay attention to the entire human experience and create environments of welcome, physically, spiritually, emotionally, attitudinally, and communicatively where people want to be led. Now, as most of you know, this new series is based on my book just released this week, The Hospitable Leader, Create Environments Where People and Dreams Flourish. And part of the reason that I wrote this book is to try to explain the approach to leadership that has helped us create such a hospitable place here at the Life Christian Church in what many, sadly, consider to be a very inhospitable part of the world. I had the privilege of speaking yesterday morning at a prayer breakfast for the National Renewal Summit in Washington, D.C., and um, many of these folks uh, were from the South, a group of, of business leaders, political leaders, and ministry leaders. And, and by the way, uh, I know some of you are Joel Osteen fans. Joel Osteen was there and spoke as well. It was a privilege to be involved in this yesterday. But anyway, the biggest laugh line that I got in my talk was when I said that when people talk about Southern hospitality, they're not typically referring to the New York City metropolitan area. They're not talking about the South Bronx or South Jersey. It kind of offended me how loud they laughed when I said that. Evidently, they've flown into Newark Airport, though, and made the turnpike trip through a tunnel into Manhattan, so I think perhaps we could relate. Now, those of us who live here know that there's a different reality and that we are unfairly accosted around this globe, and I am setting out to change people's impression of that. But uh, I think we understand that, that this area is not famous not known for its hospitality. But I, I do have good news. Perhaps you saw the Reader's Digest poll that came out uh, here just a few months ago that named West Orange as the community in West in the as the community in New Jersey with the friendliest people. Did you see that? Yep. Yep. And you say, well, what's the deal? Well, we've been here. This church has been here now for 27 years. What do you expect? Right? I'm kidding, kind of, but maybe not actually that much. Paramus is next. Paramus is about to become the friendliest anyway. But I, what I liked about that as much as anything else is an article that was written in NewJersey.com uh, in response to the Reader's Digest poll. The, the headline says, now this sounds more Jersey. The nicest people in Jersey are apparently in this town. So the rest of us are jerks? 
And then it starts looking for nice people. At least one place in New Jersey's got them. A Reader's Digest poll named West Orange the place with the nicest people in the state. That's good. But what about the rest of us? We're all nice, blanket. I'm not going to read exactly the word that she used. Now, now we're back to more familiar territory. The, so I, I, I kid about that in a sense, but the, the larger point is that many people in our spheres of influence, wherever we may lead in this world, experience the world as a very inhospitable place, a cold, heartless machine. I believe that our world needs hospitable leaders to bring a climate change to inhospitable places. Hospitable leaders make cold places warm and warm places warmer. We are thermostats, not thermometers. We determine the temperature of a place, if you please. We create the atmospherics of welcome wherever we live and in whatever context we lead. Hospitable leaders make wonderful places more wonderful, and we specialize in making inhospitable places centers of hospitality. So here's the formal definition of a hospitable leader, and I'll, in this first talk, spend a little bit of time just kind of trying to explain what I mean in brief when I talk about a hospitable leader, and then we'll dig a little bit into welcome one. The definition of a hospitable leader is someone who creates environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever-expanding diversity of people. To me, the ultimate hospitable leader is Jesus. And one of the things that I've tried to do in writing this book, and I'll speak about this way in coming weeks, I'll speak about it this way in coming weeks, is I've tried to study Jesus from a pure leadership perspective and to talk about his leadership in a way that someone who believes in him as I do, as Lord and Savior of the world can relate to, but someone who doesn't believe in him in that way can relate to as well. Jesus was, by any standard, the most effective leader who ever lived. Show me another leader who... 2,000 years after his death, still has a billion people following him and showing up to meetings every week. I mean, this is an, incredibly, uh, an incredible version of successful leadership. And the kind of leadership that Jesus practiced is what I call hospitable leadership. He modeled hospitable leadership in so many ways. Kind of in a big picture, a metaphor that can be used for this is the metaphor of a feast or the idea of the table. I want us to see the table as a metaphor for creating well, welcoming environments. Jesus described his kingdom as a feast that a king prepared for his son. It's not the only way he described his kingdom, but one way he described his kingdom was as a feast that a king prepared for his son. How many leaders could describe their leadership sphere in such hospitable terms? I suggest that we could think of our leadership in this way. 
as a feast that we're throwing for our followers, stockholders, teams, employees, customers, congregants, students, children. Jesus did the most important work in, for the world and led the most successful movement in the history of the world in the context of a radical hospitality, a feast which he made ready and to which everyone is invited. So with this kind of thinking in mind, I suggest that hospitable leaders view life and leadership through the lens of hospitality. We should see hospitable leadership as a worldview, a mindset, an approach. It can have multiple expressions in action and behavior. It becomes a precursor to every other tried and proven leadership theory and practice. You can't lead people in any particular way until you have invited them in. So, so we think about uh, hospitable leadership as a philosophical operating system. A great operating system makes everything work better. And I think that if we can view all of our activities through the lens of hospitality, that we might find that our leadership sphere feels like a feast that we've prepared for everyone in our domain. Now, because I've talked about leadership a lot over the years, and by the way, we have quite a culture of leaders here in our congregation, but I know that one of the things that people will say to me at a time like this, but pastor, I'm not a leader. And most of you've heard me say back in a very hospitable way, I hope, everyone is a leader somewhere or should be, or everyone is a leader somewhere or can be. And this is true whether one's a CEO or a mom or a teacher in a school or a coach of a little league team or uh, the, the, the manager, a manager in a small business. And we can, and this is an academically verifiable fact, we can, I should say a scientifically verifiable fact, we can in fact, whoever we are, learn to lead or learn to lead better. Leadership is a learnable thing. Some of us have more natural giftings and tendencies towards leadership, but whether we have a natural tendency towards leading or we do not even see ourselves as a leader, we can learn to exercise influence in ways that help the people around us be led to good and beautiful things. So, the hospitable leader, as I kind of finish some of my introductory comments, the hospitable leader is organized into five welcomes. You see the five welcomes here behind me on the stage. Each week of this five-week series, we'll explore one welcome. And what I hope is that over the next five weeks that you'll make a commitment to be here on Sunday mornings to experience the sermon, which will be based in the book, but not from the book. There, there will be uh, uh, similar material in both, but uniqueness to each. I hope you'll be here to experience a sermon each Sunday. I hope that you will read along in the book from welcome to welcome. You can read through the entire book during this series if you read just six and a half pages a day, but you're going to have trouble putting the book down, so uh, I don't, don't, read too, don't read it too quickly, okay? Um, 
And then I hope that you will join one of our book clubs or small groups, what we typically call life groups. I hope that you'll join a book club over the next now just six weeks to discuss the things that you're reading and hearing in the, in, in the weekend sermons. And then finally, we have a, a devotional, a beautiful devotional. Actually, Christian wrote it. It's beautiful. A beautiful devotional that's going up on version, the Bible app. This week, it goes up on Tuesday, and I'm hoping that you'll take five or ten minutes every morning, read through the devotional as a part of your spiritual disciplines, and um, that this will be a, a way to spiritually experience uh, this, all of this and to get it deep inside of you. Now, if you're new to us, this is very common for us to practice immersive series. This isn't just about my book. We do this pretty much every trimester. We'll, you know, we do sermons and a book and small groups and devotionals all about a particular thing because we think that when we immerse ourselves in a thing, it promotes spiritual growth. It's transformative. It helps to change and renew our mind so that we're not just hearing material here and then, but we're actually growing. So, so it happens to be my book this time, which I'm excited about, but next trimester it'll be something else, probably a book called The Power of Meaning that I've referred to a few times the last few weeks. So I hope that you'll join in until, until your heart is changed so you can be a heart changer, which leads me to the first welcome of the hospitable leader, which is called Home. I believe that Jesus, that part of his, his leadership success was that people felt at home with him and that as a consequence, he was able to say things and lead them in ways not ever known prior to his leadership. Jesus fulfilled his mission in the context of hospitality. So let's kind, of, let's kind of mix the idea of hospitality and home here for a moment. He, he fulfilled his mission in the context of hospitality. There are two times that Jesus talked about why he came in the Gospels. He spoke, spoke basically in terms of what his mission statement was. The first was that he said that he came to seek and save the lost the second was that he said that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was his mission. But the means by which he fulfilled his mission was hospitality. The, the why he came was to find people far from God. But the way he came was that he came, and this is the one time that he described this in the gospel, he came eating and drinking. His leadership methodology was found and rooted in the practice of a radical hospitality. When you study the gospels, it will blow your mind, now that you think about it this way, how much of his ministry happened at dinner, or on the way to dinner, or on the way home from dinner, but it was never just about dinner. He came eating and drinking, but it really wasn't first and foremost about the eating and drinking. Dinner was good and of itself, but Jesus would typically use dinner or, again, extrapolate from that some welcoming environment 
in which to move his mission forward. Maybe it's important to clarify the eating and drinking business in terms of what Jesus was trying to accomplish. Reminds me of a, of a well-known story of all things, embarrassingly enough, of a, of a, of a preacher who was driving uh, recklessly and pulled over by a police officer. And the police officer, when he got to the window, asked the guy if he had been drinking. And this preacher said, no, I haven't been drinking. And the, and the policeman said, well, what's in that thermos? And the guy picked up the thermos, looked at it as if he'd never seen it, and said, well, water. And the policeman said, let me see it. And he took the thermos, and he looked at it, and he smelled it. He said, that's not water, that's wine. And the preacher said, praise God, Jesus did it again. When Je- so stupid. When, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was about more than giving people something to drink. He used that miracle to make a larger point, which is what he always did in these, in these, in these spaces of hospitality. In this case, John tells us that at the wedding of Cana, where he turned the water into wine, what Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. In other words, without going into great detail, the purpose was not first and foremost the wine. The the purpose was that the working of that miracle showed something about himself to those who were there and they believed in him. When he fed the more than 5,000 people who were hungry and and, and who, who, who needed bread and fish, when he, when he miraculously fed them from a few loaves and a few fishes, it wasn't just about meeting their physical need. That was part of it. But he gave a long sermon in the context of the feeding of the 5,000 about the fact that he was the bread of life. There was more going on than eating and drinking. He was moving his mission forward. On one occasion, he was eating with a Pharisee, a religious leader, who was, had a very exclusive idea about who could be welcomed to God and God's stuff. And Jesus used that dinner to say that everybody was invited to the banquet table in God's kingdom. One guy got so excited listening to him talk that he, said, he just exclaimed. It's kind of an odd interruption in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. He exclaimed, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So let me restate, Jesus didn't just have dinner, he used dinner to expand his influence, to move his mission forward, to change people's lives, to change the world. He would create this environment of home, whether he was a guest in someone's home or whether he was the host. He always ended up becoming the host and he would create an environment of home where People could be well-led. I like to say that home is where the heart is warm and that when people's hearts are warm, they are more open to being led. Um, A great example of this is that famous story where uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead, but but, but there weren't very many people who'd seen him. The news was flying around. There are a couple of guys walking uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And while on the road to Emmaus, Jesus showed up and began to speak with them, but he didn't let them recognize who he was. 
and he explained the scriptures to them. It wasn't until later, while he was sitting at dinner with them, that all of a sudden he revealed himself to them and they knew that the man they'd been talking to was the risen Christ. And then he disappeared. And when he disappeared, these guys said something very insightful. They said, didn't, we should have known that was him because while he was talking to, to us, our hearts were burning within us. They knew it was Jesus, and they, they, they had a familiar experience of being in his presence because when he was with them, their hearts were warmed. And I believe that this is a big part of what a hospitable leader, as I've defined it, does. A hospitable leader specializes in warming people's hearts. They specialize in creating environments where people's hearts are warm, and where people's wills can be engaged to participate in a, a, a leadership effort. A great example of how Jesus practiced a full-orbed hospitable leadership is found in the story of the Last Supper. Now again, I'm still kind of trying to explain the bigger picture, but also explain that when hospitable leaders do what they do, people's hearts become more open to a leadership effort. Um, there isn't a class in any business school that I know of called How to Warm People's Hearts, but I think there should be. Um, perhaps there will be now, who, who knows? Um, so um, here's an example of how Jesus thought about the whole experience and created environments where people were were more susceptible to being led to good things. The Last Supper, Jesus uh, provided space that was physically hospitable, spiritually hospitable, emotionally hospitable, attitudinally hospitable, and communicatively hospitable. I, I need to say it quickly, but here's what happened. First of all, and this always seems to surprise people, Jesus paid great attention to the physical space in which his leadership activities were to take place. The Last Supper is an example of this. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. This was an important enough assignment that he sent two of his top lieutenants to make sure they got it right. Where do you want us to go to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. This was not a small thing. This did not happen quickly. They went and found a room and Jesus said it had to be large enough. It has to be furnished properly and prepare the Passover. They didn't drive through McDonald's. They had to go find a lamb. They had to go find the wine. They had to do all the things necessary to prepare a table for 12 plus one in order for one of the most famous things that's ever happened in the world to happen through the leadership of Jesus. Secondly, he created a spiritual environment. Now, this is what I'm going to come back to here in a few moments and try to bring home uh, uh, before we leave, but, but I'll introduce the idea now. He provided a spiritual environment out of who he was in relationship with the Father. John's gospel said that Jesus knew that he'd come from the Father. 
and that he had authority from the Father, that he was going back from the Father. And this was essential to creating a spiritual environment because in this, Jesus was connected to the Father and this created proper spiritual space. Thirdly, he created an environment of, of emotion that exuded love. John's gospel said that at that dinner, Jesus showed his disciples the full extent of his love. This is part of what a hospitable, a hospitable leader does. A hospitable leader makes sure that no one who follows them ever wonders whether or not they are loved by the leader. Jesus showed the full extent of his love. This isn't just a biblical concept, by the way. You can study some of the academic work, for instance, of Rodney Ferris and his, his uh, uh, research and writings around organizational love. Leaders today, if we want to warm people's hearts and engage them in the heart, we have to figure out appropriate ways to convey love in the organizations that we lead. He also created a proper attitudinal environment. He had the attitude of a servant. Remember, this is where he wrapped himself in a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. He postured himself not as a dictator, not as an authoritarian leader, but as a servant who met the needs of his follower. The apostle Paul, by the way, said in this regard, we should have this mindset. We should have a mindset like, like God, that though he, he was in very nature God, he humbled himself, he became like a human being so he could serve human beings. Leaders who are smart are always thinking in, term, in terms of serving from their leadership position, not lording it over others. And then finally, he now had an environment in which he could communicate in a way where people would receive it. At the Last Supper, and most people don't think about it like this, but I encourage you, read it this way. And there are chapters about this in the Gospel of John. Chapters like of. Uh, Four or five chapters around this. Jesus at the Last Supper gave a leadership talk for the ages. He makes a new covenant agreement with his followers. He cast vision for their shared future. He engaged in the most extreme team building. Maybe you've been on a retreat somewhere and you did a trust fall. Well, here's, the ver here's Jesus' version of a trust fall. It is, you have to be, if you're gonna be on my team, you have to be willing to lay your life down for each other. That's the kind of trust that they had for each other. He prayed passionately for their unity. He gave them buy-in to the Father's business, told them some of the secret machinations of the, of the Father's business because they now were, had a seat at the table. He established expectations and let them know that he'd be measuring results. I mean, he had a real sense of accountability and made his followers feel that. He said, I chose you so that you'd go and bear fruit or produce results. And I'm going to make sure, by the way, that you did. Hospitable leaders don't just sit around singing kumbaya. They, they hold their accountable's follower, their followers accountable for, uh, for seeing the mission actually be fulfilled. Now, I mention that just so you can get a picture of what I mean by creating an environment of welcome. The table is a metaphor for this, but I'm thinking about a leader who pays attention to the full experience of a human being, most of which resides in their heart and understands that touching a person's heart 
which is a so-called soft leadership skill, brings hard results because people with warm hearts are more willing to follow us to the things that we're leading them to. So let me spend the rest of my time on this thought with all of that in mind. I'm talking fast. Is everybody okay? All right. Only people with warm hearts can warm hearts. Or said another way, only people who are at home can cause others to experience home in their leadership efforts. And this is where I would say that, uh, that hospitable leadership is at its root a state of being. For it to be done properly, it has to come out of who we are. Okay? Now, um, concerning this warming, warming hearts business, uh, another way to, to think about this is our, our statement of values here at the Life Christian Church, which we call the TLCC Way, has as one of its, of its tenets that we are always hospitable. Now, are we always hospitable? No, like any other organization, our statement of values are aspirational. But I think most people in this room, I have no question about this, would say that their experience with us in a wide variety of ways over a period of time is that we are unusually hospitable and in those ways that we don't do it as well as we should, we're working hard always to get better. Now, it's not unusual for an organization to have some kind of a hospitality tenant in their statement of values. We add to it this little sub-point. There are a couple sub-points, but one of them is that we massage people's hearts. Um, I uh, heard about a pastor who was invited into uh, uh, a surgical theater to watch a well-known surgeon perform open-heart surgery. And when the surgery was finished, the surgeon evidently did what is not that uncommon. He reached his hand into the chest cavity and started to massage the heart so as to get the heart beating back properly again. And in this particular case, and this is, was evidently the unusual part, this person's heart, though massaged and prepared to beat, didn't start beating again until the surgeon actually said to this person, still under anesthesia, of course, Mrs. Johnson, the surgery went well. Tell your heart to beat again. And this person's massaged heart started beating again. I have a friend, Randy Phillips, Pastor Randy Phillips, uh, who many of you would know as one of the singers in Phillips, Craig and Dean, who wrote a song called Tell, your heart, Tell My Heart to Beat Again. Well, I think that part of our job uh, here at TLCC, and I think this can be applied in any organization, is to prepare people's hearts to receive a life-giving message. And what I have encouraged our leaders to do, and again, we're always working to get better at this, is when we're engaged in whatever we're engaged in around here in ministry, that we're never just thinking about the technique of the thing we're doing, we're thinking about the human experience and we're massaging people's hearts. So a barista in the coffee bar is not just thinking about handing someone a cup of coffee. They're, 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 they're reaching into the chest cavity and massaging the heart, if you please. I know it's an odd thing to say,
way, but you won't forget it now that I said that way. I want people to experience something more than coffee. I want their heart to be warm because at some point they're going to hear a life-giving message that tells their heart to beat again. And this is, you know, so we're not just parking cars, we're massaging hearts. We're not just teaching kids, we're touching their hearts. We're not just leading a small group. We care about the heart. This is not a machine. People are not machines. It's not just about technique. It's about the experience people are having that help put them in a position to receive a life-giving message. Okay? So, and this is then ultimately about more than technique. You know, so, so, Coming back to the coffee bar illustration, it's not just about how the drink is made. We need to give great care to that, by the way. Uh, how the line moves. We need to give, we can always get better at these things. We have great volunteers who do a great job there, but nothing freezes the heart like a long line to wait for. Anyway, we, you know, the technique is important, but more important than the technique is the spiritual state, if you please, of the person who's doing the thing so that there's something transformational happening in the exchange, not just transaction. I, I, I got a cup of coffee, and obviously people aren't thinking about this, but somehow or another, my heart was strangely warm within me. Are you with me? I heard somebody give a, give a talk on a Sunday morning. I heard the information, although statistics say that you'll forget 95% of it by like the time you watch one of our teams, hopefully not, lose this afternoon. Just always think about the Yankees. But anyway... You'll forget 95% of it, but it's more, which is why I hope you'll read and talk about it and so on and so forth, because then it becomes a part of you. But it's, it's about more than the information being exchanged. It's about a connection that's happening on a spiritual level. And a lot of the success of that depends on the spiritual state of being of the person who's doing the talk or singing the song or parking the car or teaching the kids. Do you, un you understand what I'm saying? If we're going to be good heart warmers, we have to have warm hearts, which speaks to our own spiritual state of being. See, I think that the reason that people's hearts were warm when they were with Jesus is because his heart was warm. And his heart was warm because of who he was in relationship to the Father. Now back to what he said at the Last Supper that spoke of his own interior spiritual condition. We're told that Jesus knew, now that's the word I want to emphasize, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Let's say it this way, Jesus was at home with the Father. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. You know what it's like to be with someone who is at home? What they convey through who they are? Imagine the at-homeness that Jesus experienced, knowing who he was, where he had come from, and where he was going. But then he told his disciples they could be in that very state of being, that they could experience that at-homeness. Here's how he said it. He said, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then a few sentences later, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And that's where he's telling them that he now is going to come and actually make his home in them. Spiritually, Jesus here is talking about home as the Father's house and a, play, a place to which we all will go. But his real emphasis, as you read through the text and what Jesus said, is that he was going to come and live in them so that the Father's home would actually be in his followers. The point is, is through relationship with God, everyone could be at home in the Father in the way that Jesus was. He said, I'm at home and you can be at home too. When we are in relationship with God through the work of Jesus, who said he's the way for this to happen, we are at home with the Father. Consequently, our hearts should be warm, and that warmth should be conveyed in every part of who we are, how we live, how we lead. This is when our leadership activities become transformational. Now, I know people who I would consider to be hospitable leaders who do not believe in or follow Jesus and who are not at home in the way that I am describing. I want to be clear to say this. Most of you know, I think all truth is God's truth. And if something is true, whether it's coming from someone who follows Jesus or not, it's still true. Somebody says two plus two is four. It doesn't matter whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. Two plus two is four. I accept it as true. That's why I will borrow from lots of uh, uh, students and practitioners of leadership. And if they're saying something I believe to be true about leadership, whether they're following Jesus or not, I'm, I'm still learning from the truth. So I want to be very honest and transparent about this. But, but here's what I want to say to you. I think any leader can become more effective in their leadership and practice the kind of hospitality I'm talking about if they are in right relationship with God that can be described as home. I've had the privilege, and you can see some of the folks who endorsed my book, I have relationships with these people, and I don't want to get into specifics here, to sit at the table with some of the people who are considered to be some of the greatest leaders of our times and have conversations, spiritual conversations, and to watch them resonate to this idea that regardless who you are, how much success you've had, your life can be better and everything you do can be better when you know who you are in relationship with God when you come home. And my own personal experience is, I am not by nature, I am not by nature a hospitable guy. And some of you have been here forever, you know that, and I think that your testimony would be, and it's why you've still hung out with me, is you've seen me grow in this thing. And part of this is through my own leadership failures. I, you know, for those of you who don't know, I've been here 27 years, so I've had a long time to 
work on this thing. I've realized if I'm going to do this well, and it's, if it's going to be sustainable, if it's going to be done all, over a long period of time, and if I'm going to lead like Jesus, I need, some, I need personal transformation that helps me be more like Jesus. And the way to be more like Jesus is through my relationship with Jesus. And what I've learned, the more at home I am with Jesus, the warmer my heart becomes and the more the warmth of my heart is conveyed in the way I lead. So here's the deal. Whether you don't believe and do not know who you are in relationship with the Father, you can come into relationship with God who is the way who, who, of which Jesus said he is the way to that relationship. You can be at home with God. And for those of us who have believed, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we become more and more at home. Final thought, and it's this. It doesn't, it doesn't do any good to be at home with God if you don't know you are. Now, I've said a lot, and it's kind of like, how do you layer something more on? But I'm going to try. A person who knows. See, Scripture said Jesus knew who he was in relationship with the Father. A person who knows, not just in their head, but in their heart, that they are in right relationship with God, at home with the Father, is a person who is in a state of being that is hospitable. You know that. Someone who doesn't know, even someone who's believed, but it hasn't gotten from their head to their heart, they still have a certain anxiety about them. They live in certain level of guilt and shame and confusion and I don't know. And You have to know. Something I've been meditating on the last year of all things is something I read that Dr. Brene Brown, the, uh, I guess you would say, sociologist, uh, an expert in shame research, wrote about wholehearted living. She said wholehearted living is about engaging our lives from a place of worthiness. Those who feel lovable, who love, and who experience belonging simply believe they are worthy of love and belonging. I read this a year ago on my study intensive, and I've wrestled with it for almost a year. Thinking this from my background uh, as a uh, coming out of some, some Christian legalism, frankly, am I allowed to consider myself worthy of being loved and belonging? I know that I am not in right relationship with God through my own effort. I know that I'm saved by grace, which I don't deserve through faith. It's not something I did. So am I allowed to consider myself worthy of being loved? Now you say, why is it important now that we're talking about ourselves worthy of being loved? Because a person, the research says, who considers themselves worthy of love is a person, let's say it this way, who is at home and can live in a wholehearted way that impacts other people's hearts in positive ways. I thought about that, meditated on that really for about a year, and I, I finally have come to understand that though I have done nothing to earn salvation, I have un come to understand I am worthy of being loved. Why? Because God said I am. God, Paul said, demonstrates his love 
to us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Whoever you are, whatever your present state of being, you are worthy of being loved because God said you are. And God said that he loved you so much that he made a way for you to be at home with the Father. And whether we've ever made that journey from our present state of being to being home with the Father, or whether we're at home with the Father, but we're having problems knowing it, we need to know that we are home because he says we are. And when we get that settled in our hearts, it changes the way we think, the way we feel, what we convey, the way we live, the way we relate, and it changes the way we lead. We lead from a place called home. Now, 